0: If you're listening to this podcast, chances are you're familiar with Mother Angelica and EWTN. It is the world's largest religious media network, and she was, in the words of Time Magazine, the superstar of religious broadcasting. It's hard to argue with the characterization in the subtitle of Raymond Arroyo's 2005 biography of Mother Angelica, The Remarkable Story of a Nun, Her Nerve, and a Network of Miracles. Scott and I will be summarizing the story of Mother Angelica and EWTN, this time on Catholic History Track. God bless America. God love you. I want these to be my first words of greeting to you. They will be the concluding words on each broadcast.
1: I am not the Catholic candidate for president. I am the Democratic Party's candidate for president. Announce your
0: peace. God you it You've embarked on a Catholic history trek. The EWTN story is in large measure the Mother Angelica story, which starts, in a way, in Italy in the 13th century. Poor Clares have their origin in the life of St. Clair, who resolved to emulate St. Francis of Assisi's radical dedication to God through a life of prayer, service, and poverty. Other women joined Clare, and this second order of the Franciscan family became known as poor Clare's and spread throughout the world. For more about the Franciscans, see our podcast number 38. Like the male wing of the Franciscan order, various reforms and branches have developed on the female side. One of these branches, the poor Clare's of perpetual adoration, was founded in France in 1854. In 1921, Mother Agnes and Mother Cirilla, from a monastery in Vienna, came to the United States to establish the Poor Clares of the Adoration in this country. The bishop they were in contact with, and who was supportive, was Joseph Schrems of Toledo. While they were en route, they received word that he had been transferred to Cleveland, so that's where the first American House of Poor Clares of Perpetual Adoration was established. In 1931, the sisters took over the church of a former Episcopalian parish on Euclid Avenue. It was rededicated as the Shrine of the Conversion of St. Paul. That's where a young woman named Rita encountered the poor Clares near the end of World War II.
1: Rita Rizzo was born in 1923 in a rough, poverty-stricken corner of Canton, Ohio. In the late 19th and early 20th centuries, urban Italian neighborhoods were afflicted with organized crime, notably New Orleans, New York, and Chicago, but Canton was no exception. The Mononera, or Black Hand, was a Sicilian mob who ruled the neighborhood where Rita lived. When she was five years old, her father, John Rizzo, abandoned the family, forcing Rita and her mother, May, to move in with her maternal grandparents and her four uncles, crammed into an apartment above a saloon her grandfather ran. If you remember your American history, the saloon was being operated during the heart of the Prohibition era. The 18th Amendment made America officially alcohol-free in 1920. With this living arrangement, Rita became acquainted with the shady characters, organized crime scene, bootleggers, and vice which defined the slums of Canton in the early 20th century. Although her family was not religious, her mother began to take Rita to St. Anthony Catholic Church. But even the church proved no sanctuary from the crime and violence. In 1929, the pastor of St. Anthony's, Father John Riccardi, was gunned down after the 9 a.m. Sunday Mass. A year later, her parents divorced, and combined with poverty and bouncing around from one tiny rat-infested apartment to another, Rita's mother, May, broke down and suffered depression, compelling young Rita to pick up various jobs to financially support herself and her mother. In 1940, Rita began to suffer from pitosis of the stomach. A few years later, hoping for a cure, she visited Rhoda Wise, a renowned mystic who lived in Canton. Rhoda suffered many bowel and stomach problems, causing her to undergo at least 14 surgeries, including the removal of a 39-pound ovarian cyst. During one of her many hospitalizations, the hospital nuns befriended her, and Rhoda underwent a conversion from Protestantism and joined the Catholic Church in 1939. Rhoda then began to experience mystical locutions. She saw St. Teresa of who healed her broken foot and often in pain, Jesus appeared to her, seated on a chair in her room, after which Rhoda also began to receive the stigmata. The accounts of Rhoda's ecstasies drew crowds outside the home, sometimes as many as 14,000 pilgrims in a day, appeared at the Rhoda Wise House in Canton. Many miraculous healings were recorded by these visitors, and one of these recipients of a healing was Rita Rizzo. Today, the Rhoda Wise home is open to the public with many artifacts, including her clothing stained from the blood of the stigmata on display. And her calls for canonization was begun about a decade ago. And I think since I was there a decade ago, they have built a small shrine next to the house. This experience with Rhoda and the miraculous healing led Rita to God. In 1944, she left home to join the poor Clares of Perpetual Adoration in Cleveland, Ohio, as Kevin mentioned she became Sister Mary Angelica of the Annunciation. While in Cleveland, she endured more physical ailments, pneumonia, tonsillectomy, and knee problems caused by regularly ascending and descending the five stories of the steps at the monastery. In 1946, she was sent to Santa Clara Monastery, a new monastery which the order was opening in Rita's hometown of Canton. This one was not five stories tall, so it was deemed more suitable for her. From what I recall when I visited the monastery, I think it's two stories. It could be mistaken. With construction lagging on the new monastery, Sister Mary Angelica turned to the men from her old neighborhood and was able to pull a few strings to get the work completed. Then in 1953, while operating an electric floor cleaning machine at the new monastery, Sister Mary Angelica suffered a new injury, this time a back injury which left her partially paralyzed, requiring a brace and filling her with many years of back pain. In 1946, she prayed that if God would offer her healing to walk after a back surgery, she would build God a monastery in the South. A year later, Bishop Tulin of Mobile invited the nuns to Alabama. Tulin, who was Bishop of Mobile for over 40 years, was an active champion of civil rights for the black population in the South, opening many new Catholic churches in black neighborhoods, ordering Spring Hill College, which was their seminary, to become the first integrated institution of higher learning in Alabama and ending segregation in the Catholic schools in Alabama well before the public institutions were forced to do so. In 1960, Sister Angelica was appointed the abbess for the new monastery, Our Lady of the Angels, located in the Birmingham suburb of Irondale. But the American South was not ready for a strong Catholic presence, especially one that wanted to serve the African American population. When construction began on the monastery in 1961, the site was regularly vandalized. And in 1962, when the nuns moved in, they were greeted on a couple occasions with gunshots fired at the monastery. To raise funds for a self-sufficient monastery, the nuns began making St. Peter's fishing lures and later switched to the roasting and selling of peanuts under the title of Little Peanut Company. But when Mother Angelica began to write little booklets and appear on local television and radio, the Simple Monastery began to take a completely different and unexpected direction.
0: So by the early 1970s, Mother Angelica was in public ministry with Bible studies, talks for area parishes, and women's groups, speaking both to Catholic and non-Catholic audiences. She did some cassette tapes and published a few books. By the late 1970s, she was in demand around the country as a speaker especially on topics like the charismatic movement and spirituality. During one of her speaking tours, she was in Chicago in 1978 when she visited a Baptist-run TV station. As she looked over the small studio, she uttered her famous words, Lord, I gotta have one of those. A local attorney, a married deacon, Bill Steldemeyer, attended one of Mother's talks in Chicago. The two didn't speak at the time, but they saw each other at a reception and there was a kind of mystical connection. Steltemeyer was reluctant, but he felt God insisting that he get involved. Steltemeyer would be a key figure in EWTN. He was the founding president, the CEO until 2009, and the chairman of the board until his death in 2013. Mother Angelica's first attempt at television happened in April of 1978, a half-hour video retreat called Our Hermitage recorded at a Birmingham studio. In the words of the principal financier of the project, Gene Morris, It was a disaster. It really and truly was. But after a few attempts, they got it right. Before a live audience, Mother Angelica slipped into her folksy style and mischievous humor. The show was shopped to Pat Robertson's Christian broadcast network, and they demanded 60 more episodes so that they could air it daily. By 1979, Mother Angelica had decided to build her own studio and her own network. A building designed to be the monastery's garage, currently under construction, was transformed into a television studio. For neither the first nor the last time, some observers, and some friends, thought she was crazy. Unless you are willing to do the ridiculous, she said, God will not do the miraculous. When you have God, you don't have to know everything about it. You just do it. From 1979 to 1981, Mother Angelica and her collaborators raised funds and purchased equipment. She continually went into debt, and just enough funds continually arrived as needed. There are many stories along these lines, and I'll offer just one of them. They were ready to file for an FCC license, but needed a credit guarantee to purchase the necessary satellite dish. A man who had just sold his business was visiting Birmingham and toured the monastery's print and television operations. He agreed on the spot to provide the $280,000 credit. In January 1981, the group received its FCC license, making it the first Catholic satellite TV station in the United States. And a corporation was formed, the Eternal Word Television Network, EWTN. On August 15th, the Feast of the Assumption in 1981, EWTN began transmitting four hours of content per day to 60,000 homes. The early years weren't easy. The network repeatedly faced bankruptcy and an inability to pay bills on time, but again enough money came in. Sometimes Steltermeyer took out personal loans to cover. Cable TV was still in its infancy and Mother Angelica had to sell EWTN to local providers. She worked the same cable industry conventions as Ted Turner, the father of CNN. He persuaded the providers to connect to satellite links. She persuaded them to take EWTN's content. Financing the operation was an expected challenge, but a perhaps more surprising one came from the American Catholic bishops. They were trying to start a cable network at the same time, and they saw EWTN as competition. Some involved in the project discouraged the EWTN enterprise. An anonymous staffer for the National Bishops' Conference opined to the media, cloister nuns should stay in their monasteries and not get involved in stuff like this. Although Mother Angelica and EWTN enjoyed the support of many bishops, there were also occasional conflicts, most notably the 1997 quarrel with Cardinal Roger Mahoney of Los Angeles. On one of her shows, Mother Angelica briefly but strongly criticized Mahoney's recent pastoral letter on the Eucharist deeming it indicative of the decline in belief in the real presence. Mahoney was livid and strenuously tried to compel an apology or enforce other disciplinary measures on the nun and her network. The dispute ended up involving numerous Vatican officials and dicasteries. It gradually ended with a whimper rather than a bang as Mother Angelica repeatedly refused to address it any further and Mahoney eventually abandoned his campaign against her. Her controversial comments were made on Mother Angelica Live, probably the network's best-known show. It debuted on August 15, 1983. Although there were guests, the primary attraction of the show was, without question, Mother Angelica herself. In this way, it's somewhat reminiscent of Fulton Sheen's Life is Worth Living. It simply relied on the personality of the presenter and the substance of their presentations. By late 1983, EWTN was on 95 cable systems in 31 states. By 1985, 220 systems and 2 million homes. A new studio was built in that year, and by the end of the year, viewer donations exceeded expenses. In 1986, changing conditions in the cable market compelled EWTN to make the jump from six hours of programming to 24. By the middle of 1987, EWTN was broadcasting 24-7 and reaching 10 million households.
1: Besides building a television network from the ground up, Mother Angelica was involved in building Franciscan communities. 25 years after their founding, her monastery of Port Clares had grown from six members to 15, and she was a key figure in the creation of two new religious communities in 1987, the Sister Servants of the Eternal Word and the Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word. The Sister Servants were officially founded by Mother Mary Gabriel, who is a member of the Dominican Sisters of St. Cecilia, an order often referred to as the Nashville Dominicans. Her new sister servants were an active, contemplative community who catechized and hosted retreats at the Casa Maria Retreat House in Irondale, Alabama. The Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word were formed to teach and evangelize through modern media. At the time of their founding, this meant television and radio, but later would include the internet. These Franciscan Missionaries of the Eternal Word are the ones you'll see on EWTN's Masses and on a few other shows, such as hosting Life on the Rock. In 1990, Mother Angelica began to create a shortwave radio network, which she had been pondering for a couple years. While on a scouting trip to select a location for the antenna, she had a vision of St. Michael. She instantly decided to purchase the spot where she had seen the angel, even against the advice of experts who informed her that the location was unsuitable for a shortwave radio signal to reach very far. But again, she put her trust in God and by 1992, WEWN was launched, and the site Mother Angelica selected turned out to be an unexpectedly ideal location, allowing the signal to reach up to 600 million people. She began to endure more physical suffering. Following an assault at a local mall, her wrist was shattered and she never regained full use of the wrist, and a case of severe asthma and congestion led to coughing that was so violent she shattered her vertebrae and was fitted with a new back and leg brace. But the biggest change for Mother Angelica in the early 1990s was not the shortwave radio, nor the additional physical suffering. Instead, it was World Youth Day. In 1993, EWTN covered World Youth Day, hosted in Denver, Colorado. Following the Stations of the Cross, when Jesus was portrayed as a woman, Mother Angelica took to the air with an impassioned 28-minute speech. I'm tired of your inclusive language that refuses to admit the Son of God is a man. I am so tired of your liberal church in America. She decried the progressives in the church, who had turned World Youth Day into a platform to promote a heretical statement. She responded with a statement of her own, affirming Catholic truths against the modernism plaguing the church. One of her changes, following the World Youth Day scandal, was returning to the traditional habit which is why episodes recorded before 1993 have her wearing a more contemporary brown habit, but later episodes feature her in the classic black and white habit. She also instituted traditional cloister practices for her nuns, and a couple years later began construction on a new monastery in Hanceville, Alabama. If you get a chance to visit Ida and Our Lady of the Angels Monastery in Hanceville, you'll notice a stark difference of activity around the studio compared to the peaceful quiet on the long road leading to the monastery. This is by design. The new monastery location was about an hour north of Irondale to isolate the cloistered community from the bustle surrounding EWTN. She originally acquired 200 acres for the monastery, but later expanded that to 400 acres to provide a buffer around the property, keeping hotels and restaurants from popping up next to their sanctuary.
0: In the late 1990s, EWTN took steps to become what it is today, not just a cable TV network, but a Catholic media conglomerate. In early 1996, it acquired a Catholic website that possessed a large collection of church documents. Its website would become a source for Catholic news, Catholic apologetics, and church documents. Around the same time, EWTN launched a satellite radio service, initially providing content for AM and FM stations. Eventually, this content would be available via the Internet and satellite radio as well. Among the least famous personalities appearing on EWTN's radio network is Kevin Schmezing, who began offering a segment on This Week in Catholic History for the Sunrise Morning Show in 2007. In 2011, EWTN purchased the National Catholic Register, one of the most venerable and popular Catholic publications in the U.S. So, EWTN is on TV, Internet, radio, and print, just about covering it all. An astounding array of major Catholic figures have appeared on EWTN screens. Among its well-known shows are The World Over with Raymond Arroyo, which is a weekly news show, and The Journey Home with Marcus Grodi, which depicts stories of converts to Catholicism. It's also well-known for its live coverage of events such as World Youth Days, as Scott mentioned, Marches for Life, and Papal Travels. And, of course, staples such as Daily Mass, the Rosary, and the Divine Mercy Chaplet. Mother Angelica died in 2016, but EWTN lives on. It has been and continues to be a major influence on the Catholic Church in the United States and beyond.
1: With this extensive network of radio, television, and print, as Kevin mentioned, EWTN is by far and away the largest single media Catholic outlet. But there are competitors in each of these fields. Among the television outlets, the oldest of them is Catholic TV, whose origins go back to a 1955 recording of Boston Archbishop Richard Cushing offering the Mass. The Boston Archdiocese purchased time on local television stations to air Sunday Mass each week, And after acquiring a license to broadcast their own signal, they became the nation's first full-time Catholic television stations under the call sign WIHS. In the mid-60s, they aired Catholic programming on that station before selling it for about $2 million. In 1983, the Archdiocese jumped back into cable television under the name Boston Catholic Television, offering programming a few hours a day on local cable networks. And in 2006, they rebranded as Catholic TV and have the largest national reach behind EWTN. And perhaps their biggest claim to fame is an interview they did this summer with Dr. Kevin Schmiesing on the release of his book, A Catholic Pilgrimage Through American History. So maybe on the strength of that interview, Catholic TV will close the gap with EWTN. Suppose only time will tell. Several other dioceses run their own Catholic stations, which offer anywhere from a full 24-7 lineup of programming to a partial day. Each of these are regional, usually carried on local networks in their diocese. In the New England area, in addition to the aforementioned Catholic TV, there's also the Catholic Faith Network in the Diocese of Rockville Center and New Evangelization Television in the Brooklyn Diocese. Outside of New England, there is Catholic Life Television, launched in 2001 by the Diocese of Baton Rouge. There are also international television networks as well, Perhaps the one which may be the most recognizable to American audiences would be Salt and Light Television. It was begun by an Italian immigrant who moved to Canada after World War II and worked for the Canadian Pacific Railway. While I won't get much into the Canadian Pacific Railway, I will mention that he was inspired by the 2002 World Youth Day held in Toronto to launch Salt and Light Television the following year. When he did this, he was in his mid-80s, Today, Salt and Light airs 24-7 programming in various languages on several smaller television providers. On the radio, there are a number of local Catholic stations, although many of them carry EWTN's free programming, so they aren't really competition, as it were. But there are several other networks, which are unrelated to EWTN, who could be seen as competitors or running in the same space. Two of these would be Radio Maria and Relevant Radio. Radio Maria has a huge international footprint, while Relevant Radio positions itself as, I guess, more of a balance against EWTN's center-right programming. And while there are many Catholic print alternatives to EWTN's National Catholic Register, many of them don't really compete in the same space. Pretty much every diocese in the United States has a print newspaper which runs anywhere from weekly to monthly, but these have a different focus than the Register. The same can be said for publications like St. Anthony Messenger, Catholic Answers, or Our Sunday Visitor. But there are some Catholic publications which could be seen as the Register's competition, vying for the same readers. Some of them are Crux, The Remnant, The Wanderer, and National Catholic Reporter. The National Catholic Register and the newer National Catholic Reporter can sometimes be confused because of the similar sounding titles, but there's no confusing the content. The Reporter, based out of Kansas City, was condemned by Kansas City's bishop, Charles Helmsing, who demanded they remove the name Catholic from their title. Bishop Helmsing decried what he called their policy of crusading against the church's teachings and making itself a platform for airing heretical views. 35 years later, another bishop of Kansas City, Bishop Robert Finn, repeated the request for the reporter to remove the word Catholic from their title. As he put it, they were officially condemning church teaching. To date, the reporter has ignored the requests from these bishops to change their title or their teachings. The entirety of the history of Mother Mary Angelica and Ida Bettienne can be summarized as trust in God, which started out as half a dozen cloistered nuns with $200 and a garage turned into the world's largest Catholic multimedia network. Physical pain and a constant lack of funds did not stop Mother Angelica from moving forward, seeking to do God's will. Trusting if God wanted it, God would take care of the details, which he did, time and time again. And while Kevin and I won't ask you to remember to keep us between your gas and electric bill, we will ask you to like, rate, and share the podcast. It helps us reach an audience to whom we can share the history of the people, places, and events which shaped the Catholic Church. Gloria Patri et Filio, Spiritui Sancto.
0: Sigurd erit in principio et nunc et semper et in secular seculorum. Amen. Thank you for listening to Catholic History Trek. You can reach us at Catholic History Trek at gmail.com.